so good. Have you ever seen someone who is being kind of arrogant or they're kind of being a, a jerk a little bit and, and then they get what they deserve and inside you sort of throw a little bit of a party? You're just like, yes. Like, uh, like what, one, of the, one of the small joys in life for me is like when you see somebody that's driving super fast or they're driving kind of crazy and then you catch up to them and they're pulled over getting a ticket and you're just like, boom. And you're just like pointing at them. <laughs> Uh, no, nobody does that besides me. Like, no, I really, really savor those moments. Uh, partly because for m- many, many, many years, I was that guy that was being pulled over and, and getting the ticket. Uh, and it just took, it took a while to kind of figure out uh, and, and learn my lesson. Um, <clears throat> we moved up here a couple years ago. And before that, we lived in Southern California and, and we lived in the Inland Empire. And I don't know if you're familiar with that area, but um, the 91 freeway kind of runs through the Inland Empire and connecting to Orange County, and, and uh, it's regularly in the top five worst freeways in the country um, and most hated freeways and the most traffic. And, uh, and so we lived, uh, we lived like uh, 11 or 12 miles from the office that I worked in and from where my home was, and, and, uh, but I had to take the 91 all the way there, and so it would take me about 75 minutes one way. Uh, to get that 11 miles is just the worst. It was the worst. Uh, so it's not hard to figure out why people leave California, um, but amongst other reasons. But whenever the traffic was really bad, you'd be sitting and, and people would start driving along on the shoulder and then go up and try to cut in. And you, you, I don't know if you ever experienced that. And there were a couple of times though, where like the CHP was sitting there with a little bit of a trap and then you get up there and there's like five or six or eight cars just lined up and he's just ticketing them all. And it was just like, I just wanted to like stop because the traffic was still stopped and just get out and just be like, just go high five the officer and point at all the people because there's something inside of us that kind of rises up against people sort of elevating themselves above other people or cutting the line or cheating the system or rigging the game in their favor, right? Like especially when they seem to be getting away with it. I mean, is there anything more maddening than somebody that, that's doing those things and it just seems like it just always goes in their favor and you're just like, oh God, somebody needs to like, oh, somebody needs to knock them back. Somebody needs to prove that somebody, they need to get what's coming to them. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes it feels better when something bad happens to somebody who deserves it or who we think deserves it than it actually does when something good happens to us. Like we'd rather, like, I don't know if you've ever had those moments, you're like, I don't care if anything good happens to me. I want something bad to happen to them. Have you ever experienced that? Because the injustice of those moments really kind of irritates us. It grates on us, right? Like even if they didn't cheat or do something shady to get ahead, it still feels good when somebody who's arrogant or kind of smug gets taken down a few notches, right? Gets kind of put in their place. And so the last few weeks, we've been making our way through this incredible teaching from Jesus, the greatest sermon ever given. This called, we, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And, and there's one of those kind of smack down, putting everybody in their place kind of moments right in the middle of Jesus's sermon. Because one of the things that's really interesting about this message, and if you ever want to read it, it's found in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, which is the first book in the New Testament. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, you can read the whole sermon in its entirety. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about what was happening in that moment was, was really the people he was talking to. Because the crowd that had gathered who was listening to him talk was incredibly diverse. Because you had Jesus' own disciples who were there and, and he was really speaking primarily to them. 
but you had this massive crowd of onlookers who were just kind of curious because they had heard about some of his miracles. And so you had people who were rich and wealthy. You had people who were kind of marginalized. You had people, um, you had some of the religious leaders and teachers and other rabbis who had really wanted to kind of check out what all the buzz was about this guy, Jesus. And they were a part of the, the mainstream kind of religious machine that ran the Jewish culture at that time. And, and then you also had people that were kind of on the very fringes of all of that, on the fringes of society that weren't really religious at all, but they just had heard about this guy, Jesus. And so when Jesus begins teaching, he starts off in kind of a surprising kind of mysterious way. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And he begins to describe what his movement will be like and what God is like and, and the kind of life that God is after. And it, it was so completely upside down from what everybody had expected him to say and everybody, what everybody had expected him to do that they're all just kind of off balance. Like nobody's really sure what to say or do as Jesus starts talking. And while they're still trying to kind of wrap their heads around what he's saying and what he just said and, and all the sort of questions that are sort of permeating the crowd. Like he just starts wrecking everybody in this next section because what he does is he begins to reframe the very basic conventional wisdom and morals and rules that everybody knew and people have been trying to live by for centuries. And so he, would, he went into this long section of his message where he would say things like, you have heard it said, and then he would quote some part of the, the Jewish law or the law of Moses that they had all knew and they were all familiar with. But then he would say, but I'm telling you, but I say. So he'd basically be like, you know the law of God, you know the scriptures, you know the law of Moses, but here's what I'm telling you. Now, we, we actually can't even begin to understand like just how sacrilegious this would have been for Jesus to say for the people that were listening, regardless of where they were at in their journey with God. Because the laws that Jesus began reframing were laws that came directly from God through Moses. And I mean, think about it. Like you can't like add to or reword or try to improve on something God has said. Like only, only God can do that. I mean, it'd be like if I, if I stood up here and I'd be like, okay, you guys know the Bible verse that says you need to forgive people, but I'm telling you, you can throat punch them, right? Like, you'd be like, okay, get off the stage. Who is this clown? Like, but th that's exactly what Jesus starts to do is to reframe things that they had lived with their whole life, things that God had said, right? So for Jesus to say, you've heard it said, but I say, he was essentially saying, look, I'm God and I'm not taking away from anything that I've said before, but I do have some things that I wanna add to what you already know. And so he talks about anger, and murder and lust and adultery, and divorce and revenge and power and even keeping your word. And he says these really mind-blowing things like, like that God hates and, and, and that God takes when we hate someone else, right? When, when we demean and dehumanize another human being who's made in the image of God, that God takes it just as seriously as he takes murder. Or, or that, that lusting after and objectifying somebody, that reducing them to nothing more than an object that's to be used for your pleasure and gratification, it really isn't any different from committing full-blown adultery. And so he's like, yeah, you know how I told you like not to murder anyone? 
Yeah, that, that's good. That's a good starting place. But I don't know why you're acting like you're all holy because you haven't murdered anybody. Like that's, like that's just some sort of great moral and religious achievement. Like you're so proud of yourselves for not sleeping around on your wife. Like that makes you a saint. Or, or you feel so righteous and pure because you're only evil and hateful and spiteful to the people who have been evil and hateful and spiteful to you. And they're just like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? And, and then Jesus caps off the whole thing, this whole section by reframing really what the whole idea of what love is and what love does and what love looks like. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and like for those of us that have read that, that we read and we take it seriously because we believe and we're trying to follow Jesus and like I, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and been like, man, I just wish Jesus hadn't said that because I'm trying to figure out like how to live like and, and so for me, this is one of the things that I wish Jesus had just never said because I think it's one of the hardest things that he ever taught. But there's no getting around it. Like following Jesus means loving those people that we don't want to love. It means loving people who are hard to love. It means loving people who don't love us. Now, can, can, I just, can I just be honest for a second? Like, I tend to gravitate towards people who are like me, which I think most of us do. Like, you meet somebody, and they're kind of wired like you, and you're just like, I don't, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something about you I like. Oh, that's right. You remind me of me, and I'm my favorite person right? Like we all tend to kind of gravitate towards people who are like us and, and, and towards people who, who like us, people who are nice to us. Th those, are the kind, those are the kinds of people that we find easiest to love. Jesus actually uses the word neighbor, right? He says, you've heard it said that you're to love your neighbor, but he's not talking about the people who live next door. He's talking about your friends, the people close to you, the people who love you, the people that you love. And, and he's going, it's easy for you to care about those people who fit into that little box. And I've noticed that about myself because it's, it's really easy for me to, to love people who fit into my nice, neat little profile of the kind of people that I get along with, the kind of people that I vibe with, the kind of people that are my people. I mean, I love to stay within my story and I really like people who will fit into my story without making too many waves, right? Like after all, like I, I don't, you guys might not know this, but like, I'm the star of the story and you guys are just kind of the role players and extras in a story about me. I don't know if you realize that or not, but so, so and, that, and that's how we think, right? Like we're the star of the story and yeah, there's some, you know, there's some other people involved, but I mean, just don't take away from the star of the story. And then there are people who have the audacity to not want to fit into your narrative. And yeah, those people are a little bit harder to love, right? Who, who's got time to deal with that? But then Jesus comes along and he just begins to destroy all of that. And this is one of those, you have heard it said statements, which is kind of interesting because love your neighbor and hate your enemy wasn't actually something that God had ever told his people. What he actually told them in the Old Testament was love your neighbor as yourself. But as religions go, 
we try to always kind of sort of fudge things and make things a little bit easier on ourselves. So over time, the rabbis took the thing that, that God had said, which was love your neighbor as yourself, and they added in the second part. Well, God didn't say not to hate your enemies. He just said to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's okay to hate your enemies. They added in that part and it stuck and it just kind of became part of the culture and how they lived. It was just the rule that they all knew. It's just what you do. There was just an assumption. Of course, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's just how life works. It's just normal. It's just what you do. But Jesus steps into that and kind of turns it all on its head. And he says, no, 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 no. No, you need to love your enemies. Now, I, I actually, I, I love that Jesus lived in the real world. Like just the fact that he said, you need to love your enemies. It's like he's assuming that just you just living, you're gonna make and have some enemies in your life. You're gonna be, there's gonna be difficult people. There's gonna be people that are hard for you to get along with. There's gonna be people that you kind of brush up against to and, and they just rub you the wrong way. Now, the problem for me when I read that, the problem for me in my life has been, for the most part, I'm like, I don't, I mean, I don't really have any enemies. Like, I mean, frenemies maybe, but enemies? I, I don't know, like, I, I don't think this applies to me. But Jesus is talking about people that is not necessarily somebody that is, you know, when I thought about it, I'm like, what am I, five? You know, what am I back in junior high where you have like an arch nemesis? No, like, you just try to, you have people that you don't want to be around. You have people you don't like that don't like you, but I don't know, are those people my enemy? And, and Jesus is going, this is, these are the people that you're supposed to be loving. And then he says to pray for those who persecute you. And, and that's just as somebody who, have you ever had somebody in your life that, that intentionally and repeatedly kind of seeks to be just a thorn in your side? Like, like, like they just go out of their way to make your life difficult, to mess with you, kind of harass you, to stir up problems for you. Uh, a few years ago, um, well, going back more than a few years, in 2007, we started a church in Northern California and, um, and it was right before the housing market collapsed. And so we moved out into this new developing area to start the church. And right after we got there, the housing market collapsed. And so it was supposed to be this city that was gonna be built out to like 45,000 people and it ended up just being 5,000 people forever and ever, amen. That's all it was, this little tiny community of five. It's still, it's still like, I think maybe 6,500 people. Um, and, and so, but we started a church there and it started going pretty good and, and, and it growing. And, but it was a small community and it was like being back in junior high school and there's, so there's all this like, you know, gossip stuff that was always floating around. And eventually in the 10 years we were there, like the whole community just like got really, really toxic. And, um, and there were people that just made up stuff about us, that just made up stuff about our church, that just made up, like they didn't, they didn't know anything. They had no knowledge of anything. Um, they, just, they just looked at the outside and were just like, those people look like, you know, they are terrible people. And so they just made up all these rumors. They started going all over the community. And so people would move into the community and they would come to the church and, and, and <clears throat> they came to this gathering and, and I met this guy. I was like, hey, how's it going? He's good. He's like, yeah. He's like, so I, I really like the church. He's like, but I got to ask you, are you the guy that embezzled a bunch of money and like took your family to Disneyland? And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? 
He's like, yeah, my neighbor told me that as soon as I moved in. Um, and, and it was just like, oh my gosh, like what, how, how do we deal with this? And then there were people, so there was people that didn't know anything. They didn't know us. They were just making up crap. And then there were people who knew us and they knew better and they didn't make up lies, but they kind of put fuel, like they, I said something that hurt them or they worked at the church and they didn't have a great experience or somebody told them something and so they got all sort of sideways. And so they knew the truth, but they wouldn't like correct the rumors Instead, they would just be like, I don't know where they get their money. I don't know where they go. I don't know how they take that trip to Disneyland. Like, I don't know. And I'm like, you are the bookkeeper. You know, right? Like, you know how much I get paid. Like, you, you, I don't even touch the money. What are you talking about? Like, there was just all these moments and there was this temptation. There's like, it just spiraled into our life. And for a long time, I just got sucked in. I didn't even know what to do about it. And, and there was just all these people around that were just, I just, I was just like, God, I, I started having all kinds of crazy thoughts. We'd be out for a jog and I'd be like, that's a, should we just let the air out of their tires? Like, should we do, I've got to do something to these people. Like, how are you being like that? And, and Jesus is like, yeah, those are the people, those are the people that I want you to love. Enemies, frenemies people who hurt you, people who persecute you. Jesus tells us to love people when they least expect it and certainly when they least deserve it, which is a pretty huge deal, right? I mean, I struggle to love the lovable people in my life sometimes. What about you? Right? It's hard enough to get out of my own way long enough to love the people who love me. And now I'm supposed to love the people that I don't even really want to love and people who don't love me and people who certainly don't deserve me to love them. I mean, stop and think for a moment. Who's the one person in your life who would least expect to be loved by you? There's somebody. Who, who comes to mind when you think of the person who is least deserving of your love? And here's what just makes this so hard about what Jesus said because it's those people that Jesus is telling us to love. And he goes on. Verses 46 and 47, Matthew 5, he says this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And the tax collectors were kind of like the punching bag for everything that was wrong with their culture. They were people that were seen as, as traitors because they worked for the Roman government collecting taxes for their, from their own people and they were often crooked because the Romans didn't care if they skimmed off the top and they collected extra for themselves. They didn't care as long as they got their cut. And so the tax collectors were just despised by everyone. And Jesus says like, even the people that you hate, like even the people that you think are the worst people in society, even they love people who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. And he's going, loving those who love you, like everybody does that. Tax collectors do that. Pagans do that. People with no belief or connection to God. That's what, that's what the, the word pagan means. It's just like somebody that just doesn't have a faith. He's like, they do that. That's just a baseline human thing, loving people who love you. And he's like, when you love the people who love you, you know what that is? That's just predictable. That, that's, that's, that, that's just a basic human response. But loving people who hate 
and hurt and betray and annoy and irritate and who are hostile towards you. Now that, that's remarkable. Now, I, honestly, like there, there have been and still are people in my life that fall under that umbrella for me that are extremely difficult to love. I don't think of them as an enemy, but they are people that I'm like, oh God, that person, if I could just... And here's the ugly truth. I have often given myself credit for not doing something mean or hurtful or vengeful to them. So in my mind, I chalk that up as loving them and doing good. Like, hey God, you wanna know the good I did for them? I didn't murder them, all right? Like that's how I showed them love. I didn't destroy their life because they deserved it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not love. See, the absence of hate is not the same as the presence of love. Jesus says, do something for them, not something to them. Do something for the people, not something to the people who hate, hurt, and harass you. That's what love is. It does something for someone. The Apostle Paul, who came along after Jesus and had his life completely wrecked by, by, with it, by an encounter with Jesus and completely, he went from like persecuting and murdering Christians and people who were following Jesus to becoming one and becoming like one of the people that's most responsible for the New Testament and the, the spread of Christianity all around the Mediterranean rim. And so he, he started going all these journeys all over the known world at the time, starting churches, telling everybody about the message of Jesus. And then after he started those churches, he would write letters back to them, kind of unpacking the, uh, the life and the story and the teachings of Jesus and applying them and helping people figure out what it looks like in real life. And, and, and that's what we have as like comprises most of the New Testament for us. And so in one of his letters that he wrote back to the church that was in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, Paul actually like fleshes out a little bit of this whole loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you thing. So this is what he says. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And maybe a, a a more specific or understandable translation of that second sentence is, is he's talking about being, be an honorable person. Be somebody who's honorable, that people can look at your life and your life matches what you say. That, that, that there's like, the, that, that who you pretend to be in public and who you are in private, that they actually agree that you're an honorable person. Verse 18, he says, if it, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And, and so often, like when we read this verse, like, like this has been a, a really popular verse that we, we use it to kind of let ourselves off the hook. But like the truth is, as far as it depends on you, there's a lot that's within your power and your ability when it comes to loving other people to create peace between you and even, even the world worst person in your life. And so he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And, and, and God talks all tough, but the problem with trusting God with him having your back and him taking revenge on them is because you just know the moment you're like, okay, God, I'm not gonna take revenge. I'm gonna let you step in and handle this. He's gonna be all loving and gracious to them and forgive them. And you're just like, I knew it. And he's like, yeah, because that's what I did for you. Verse 20, it says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, which I kind of like that. It's like, a, it's like an offensive weapon of like forgiveness. And I, I love that Paul writes, like he's not even making a moral argument here. He's like, it's just better. You'll feel better. Like you're just heaping coals on their head. Like you want to do that? You want to hurt? Like love them, give them food, feed them, give them something to drink. And then verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, that, that's what love looks like, repaying evil with good, being honorable when they're not, actively working for their good and for peace with them, giving up the right to even the score, caring for their needs. That's what love does. See, sometimes when we read Jesus say, love your enemies, we're like, okay, I don't know what that means, but I just, I think that means I'm not gonna be mean to you. But, but when you start to define love in a different way, that there's actually, that you're doing something for them, that you're caring for their needs, that you're praying for them, that, that you've given up the right to get even, that you're working to, for peace with them, like that, that takes on a whole different, whole different connotation. And then he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, doing something for them instead of to them keeps you from becoming like them. Have you ever done something or become someone you didn't ever want to do, you know, like you didn't want to do it, or you became simply somebody that you didn't want to be simply because you responded to what was being done to you, and it so hurt you that you responded in a way that you're just like, I, I can't believe that I was that ugly, that I was that mean, that I was that nasty. But you were just defending yourself, and, and from the outside, everybody's like, yeah, they just kind of did what was any reasonable person would do, but then you catch yourself thinking things and making plans and considering options that are just like out there. Like, you're just like, no, I, I, that's not who I am. That's not how I treat people. That's not what my life is about. How does that happen? Well, because hate can, can only be overcome by, by love. Evil can only be overcome by good. And, and then Jesus, as if that's all not hard enough, he takes it a step further and he says for us to pray Pray for those who persecute us. Pray for people who've hurt us. To which my response is, oh, Lord, I'll pray for them, all right. Let them get hit by a bus today, Jesus. And then love kicks in. I'm like, okay, not a big bus, just a little bus. <laughs> just a little one. See, if I was writing this truth, this instruction based on my life, it'd read like, hey, fix Fix your enemies. Fix what's wrong with them. Correct the, those who are persecuted. Get the upper hand on the people who hate, who hate you. But, but there's something that's sort of within us that we intuitively know that that's as, as normal a response as that is, it's not the best way to live. And the problem is when you're faced with a situation where someone's hurt you or they've talked crap about you or they did something to one of your kids, oh, Right? or they're just an awful person, something inside of us in those moments screams, don't you dare love them because this person and this situation is the exception. The way to handle this is to out 
evil them. The way to handle this is to get even. The way to handle this is to show them that they've messed with the wrong person. And if I do that, then they'll leave me alone. But hate, hurt, and evil, it isn't overcome with more hate and hurt and evil. The only way to overcome it is with love and grace and good. See, there aren't a lot of options here, right? It's the predictable. It's the loving only the people who love you. Or it's the remarkable, loving even the people who are hard to love. And if you're a follower of Jesus, like he only leaves us one choice. Like if you're here today and you're just checking it out and you're not really sure about all this God stuff and you're not really a Christian, you don't, you know, or maybe you are, you're like, I believe in God, I'm not really sure about Jesus. Like you're kind of off the hook with this stuff. You, you get to just kind of listen and go, wow, that's really interesting. No, thanks. Um, but if you're a follower of Jesus, like he only leaves us one choice. Why? Because we've been on the receiving end of remarkable. We've been given amazing grace. We actually sang about it a little while ago, right? During the song, Sing His Praise Again, the second song, we sang these words, from the moment of my rescue, I have never been the same. His love took me captive and my sin was washed away. I stand here forgiven and I know that I am saved and I won't be put to shame. And we just love that. We're like, oh my soul, sing to the God. And I'm doing my dance. You know, you know you like my dance. But then when you got to like live that out and tomorrow, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I like that I've been given amazing grace. Like, see, we love like this because that's how God has loved you and has loved me. Back in, in fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, in that same section, Jesus says this. He says, when you do this, love like this, love your enemies. He says that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is going, look, God He's your heavenly father and he shows love and gives beauty and does good and gives blessing to the evil and the good, to the righteous and the unrighteous. Pa parents, have, have you ever had one of those moments where you were tempted to disown your kids? You're just like, I'm posting them on Facebook Marketplace. Free children must pick up. They don't drive. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Or, or have you ever had that experience where your wife or your husband they take credit and responsibility for your kids when they're good, but then they shift the blame and say that they're your kids when they're kind of going crazy and being all chaotic? No? See, as, as a dad, there are traits and passions and habits, a way of living and being in the world that I'm trying to pass on to my four kids. My, my oldest son is 20, and, um, and one of the most important things in life for me is that you become a Dallas Cowboys fan. And I have failed because I raised a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And no matter how much I tried to get him to love the Cowboys, he refused. Mainly because while he was growing up, they were terrible. It's hard to get people to love a terrible team. See, when God, like when describing who God is as his core, his essence, the scriptures declare that he is love. He's not just loving. He is love itself. And that's when we know that we're becoming like him, that we're like our heavenly father when we love like he loves. 
We love them not because they love us, but because God loves us. We give them because God has given us what we don't deserve. See, what, what never enters the equation in my mind is that there are people out there who, when they hear a message like this, when they think of people who are difficult to love, I'm the one that comes to mind. Like, I don't really like the idea that I have to depend on someone else's love or grace. To be honest, I don't want you to have that power. I want to take that power out of your hands because I'd like to think that the people in my life, they've done the math on me and the math checks out. That there are good things about me and there are hard things about me, but they ran the numbers and they crunched the numbers and they did the math. And because I'm awesome and I'm funny and I'm good looking, I'm just so easy to love. And the good way outweighs the bad. And so they just overlook and let go of whatever minor imperfections I might have. But that kind of math is the opposite of love. Love isn't about netting out on the right side of math. And the truth is, I'm just not that awesome. I'm broken and messed up and messy, just like they are. And God has given me love and grace and blessings that I don't deserve. And the people in my life love me not because of me or because of what I deserve, but because of who they've chosen to be. Now, that's why I love that we're building a place that's a perfect place for imperfect people because it's the only kind of place that I could actually belong to and be accepted by. It's the only kind of place that I'm qualified to lead. By, by the way, I, I've learned a couple of things in my journey of trying to love difficult people and some of them may be things that you've already mastered and you already know and you've got your handle on it, but, but I think they can be kind of helpful in pursuing a life of love. And, and one of the first ones is, is this, is that when someone is out to hurt me, God is in the middle of that whole process trying to teach me something. That, that there's something for me to learn, that there's a lesson, that there's some growth that can happen in my life. And looking for the lesson makes it easier to let go of the offense. In fact, it's hard to admit, but there have been several times in my life where an, an enemy, a, a difficult person in my life, has given me a gift that the, the, the friends and the people closest to me couldn't give me or wouldn't give me because that person who is hard to give, that person, that person who is hard to love, they, they spoke truth to me that others wouldn't speak to me or didn't want to speak to me for fear of hurting me. And so in the middle of those really difficult moments, God's always in the middle trying to help us grow. And the second thing is that you, you can't just tell people that you love them, you have to show them. It's what we do that makes love like real and tangible. Telling them is free. I mean, it's not easy, right? If somebody's hard to love, you're like, I already love you. But showing them costs you something. Romans chapter five, verse eight, Paul wrote these words. He said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, while we had made ourselves God's enemy, while we were broken and messy and lost, Jesus Christ came and gave his life for us. Yeah, I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't wait until he was feeling all the feels before he gave his life. He's like, you know, guys, I'm not feeling like dying for you today. Like, I'm just not, I don't. Overcoming evil with good is a choice. Loving instead of hating is a choice. A few minutes ago, we talked about what love does, that it, choosing to do the good and being honorable and making peace and, 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 
caring and blessing and praying, none of those things are feelings. They're just choices that I make. No, nobody says it'll be easy. At the end of that section, the Apostle Paul says to overcome evil with good. Overcome implies that it's going to be a battle, a struggle, a fight. And part of loving hard people is just choosing which fight you're going to fight. Are you going to fight with them? Or are you going to fight the kind of the darkness and evil and hate and pain and anger and revenge and ego and pride and unforgiveness in your own heart and soul and overcome it with grace and love? Because there's a fight either way. So here's the question. What would it look like for you to love and to do good to those who hate you, to those who are hard to love in your life? What would it look like to pray for the people who intentionally just make themselves a nuisance in your life, trying to complicate and mess with you. Because one of the things that Jesus is making abundantly clear when he raises the bar from murder to unchecked anger, from adultery to hidden lust, when he raises the bar on things like divorce and retribution and, not, and even something as simple as not keeping your word, one of the things he's making clear, and this is the reason why he went into all of this, is because all of the religious people that were there felt so righteous and so justified that they were better. And Jesus is making abundantly clear, no, 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 no. The, the playing field is level. You're all in the same boat. He was making it clear that self-righteousness isn't any better than unrighteousness. That it doesn't matter how clean and perfect and holy that we think we are or we may look on the outside, no matter how, you know, the level of religious piety or purity in our life, that it's the darkness on the inside. It's the rage and the lust and the greed and the unforgiveness and the selfishness and the pride that's the problem. See, Jesus never lowered God's ideals, but at the same moment that he's pointing us to that absolute ideal, he's also meeting us exactly where we are with his absolute grace. And that's, and with that kind of backstory, with that kind of context, how could I possibly justify hating anybody? How could I possibly, in humility, not choose to love and give grace to people? Because the way that I love others is the evidence that I've actually experienced God's love. By the way, if we love, the scriptures are, are right, that we love because he first loved us, then we don't become more loving by trying to be more loving. We become more loving by becoming more loved. By stepping into God's love and allowing his love to transform our lives. And he's demonstrated his love for you over and over and over and over. Absolute grace. All the good in your life, all of it is a gift from God to you. And maybe this is the best place for us to end this morning. With all of us stepping again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time again, but stepping into God's love and saying, God, I need to experience your love because the only way that I'm going to be more loving to the world around me is when I live more in the reality that you love me. That you love me and you love them. That your grace and your forgiveness and your love has been a gift to me. That you have loved me when I don't deserve it. That you've given me life and breath. And how, how can I justify 
hating somebody else. And that's what you've given to me. Let's pray together.